episode number three, Medicine Story, The Power of Mythology with Children. Thank you, my dear brother. What a beautiful soul. All children love stories. Folk tales. They are messages from our ancestors. Then you have come to the right place. We will have a storyteller in every school. Storytelling can teach. You have that openness of a child. Good on you, Eric, for doing what you're doing. That's a great question. Thank you. I'm inspired just to be here. I'm really honored to be here. We tell stories. Know yourself. Follow your passion. And live with grace. So we are on the line now with um, Medicine Story, my dear friend and elder and fellow storyteller. Medicine Story has been a storyteller for many years. He has published a series of books on storytelling and in use of storytelling in storytelling communities. And he runs a series of talking stick circles around New England in um, various maximum security prisons. Um, Story also tours in Europe and is well-known in the New England storytelling community for his beautiful stories, um, teaching peace, and um, with his knowledge and breadth, uh, with the history of how stories are used in the Native tradition. Um, story? Yeah. One reason I was really excited to have you on the show, uh, Story, is that I feel like you, more than any other storyteller I've met, really understand how stories support a worldview and how stories create our expectations of the world and how we see it, what our possibilities are, and and how open we are to the possibilities. And I, I know that uh, in working with you, I see how how in the past you have drawn storytelling and community um, as having a relationship, that communities have their own stories, and that uh, and that storytellers in community um, can really have an effect on how people see the possibilities of that community and how people see the possibilities of of what their community can become and, and, and or what their country can become. Yeah. And right now it just feels like, to me, in our country, we're trapped in one story. Uh, and there seems to be a conflict in different groups of people in, right now in the country about what story we should follow. You know, are we in a world with limited possibilities? Are we in a world with infinite possibilities? Um, are we in a world um, w- with potentials or not? And, and the resources and et cetera. It goes on like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, in with your work uh, with storytelling, um, when you're traveling to Europe um, and on your on your journeys, you use story in in community. Yes, that's right. Yes. <laughs> and how do you um, how do you feel like? Um, what is the potential of, of storytelling um, to support a community of people who are trying to say you're trying to get people to do a certain a, a certain cause or a certain event? Um, have you seen storytelling used in that way to gather people together to support a certain purpose? Well, that's been uh, the experience of humanity from the earliest times. Uh, before stories got written down, before there was any writing, uh, communities came together, the, the tribal communities, the circles of people came together, 
and uh, stories was, of course, the way in which people began to understand themselves and their relationship to the universe and their uh, responsibilities, their their morality, and, and on all of that. It's been a primary storytelling has been a primary resource for the cohesion and continuity of tribal communities since the first people made fire, sat around it, share their dreams. And as the the rise of the Greek myths and the other mythologies that are that may have been the first ones written down, um, though there are some who still tell the the Homer in an oral tradition in Greece. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in the rise of the written stories, there is sort of a, a freezing that happens with the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just reading that, the brothers. That, that, that made me uh, very reluctant to write down any stories for a long time. Our stories, my people, the Wampanoag stories were not written down and i i faced this dilemma sort of uh well we can keep them to ourselves or we can share the um the lessons and the beauty of our culture um but if i write them down then they're frozen and they're there you know <laughs> and uh and uh, i know as i tell stories they continually are transforming because it's a live thing and my life is is in movement and our people are in movement and uh, different things. So it, it, it means something a little bit different each time, it comes out a little different each time. I had to, to do that, decide, well, all right, I really want more people to be able to know about us and our stories. And so I wrote them down. And they... Mm. Uh, they came to be a book called uh, Children of the Morning Light. And after that, you know, I used to keep on telling those stories, and I look back at them frozen there on the page, and I say, oh, boy, <laughs> that, that certainly is different now. But, you know, it was, they were valid, and uh, it's good that people get a chance to, to read them. But really the oral art is the, is the living art. Yeah, and that's that's true. I I've been reading the um the original Brothers Grimm yeah, uh, recently and comparing them to some of the more popular Walt Disney versions. <laughs> and they have really changed <laughs> over the past 300 years. Uh so in in writing down these stories, um I think the struggle for a lot of storytellers as those stories develop Let's let's not talk in terms of there's there's the mythology stories, but there's also the stories that you developed yourself, right? Um, that didn't come out of your oral history, but maybe were, you're the first generation. How do you tell when a story is ready to be written down, and is a story ever ready to be written down in terms of well, a personal story? You know, uh, when you write it down, you've got a different audience. You just have to. Um, you have to make that peace with yourself. This is a different audience now, the re- the reading audience, from the one who's got to be listening to me as I tell the story. So you want the reading audience to get the story? They'll get it, and it'll be, you know, one thing. Uh, and when you tell it alive, it's going to be a different story and a different people at a different time. People ask me what stories am I going to tell when I when I get to a 
you know, uh, a storytelling session. And I say, I don't know. I got to figure it out when I see who's there. You know, I got to pick up the vibration, decide on the spot what what stories are right for these people at this time. That's really interesting because that's something close to my heart. But I've met a lot of other storytellers who don't believe that. So could you talk about that some more about um, what is the power in doing that and and how do you actually feel your way through that experience? It's kind of hard to uh, tell you how I feel my way through it because it's uh, I have never tried to analyze it and probably I can't. Uh, I just know when I get in front of a bunch of people because I'm a, a storyteller, a live performer, I relate to the people I'm there with. I talk with them a little ahead of time and I uh, set the mood and so forth and get a little feeling of, uh, you know, if this audience is here for fun and laughter, if they're really serious, if they've got problems, uh, you know, I just kind of get the senses of things. What might really be uh, the best things to, to go with for this particular time? And but, uh, what are these? What are the advantages you've seen to doing that? Mm, like what? Well, uh, I can I say just, what I, I have an antipathy towards going and laying something on somebody. Uh, unless I have a you know a real zeal to to convert them or to you know to if I'm if I'm out to do something for peace then I'll go tell a peace story you know and I'll be really into it that they they'll know what they're gonna come and and get when they get that you know but otherwise if I'm if I'm just a, uh, somebody like the other day I had a storytelling here at local library and people want to know what am I gonna tell well. What's it about? Well, it was Earth Day. Okay, well, I know one story I'll tell for Earth Day. That's that's going to be Tony Shearer's story about the praying flute. I like that. So I told him, I'll tell the praying flute, but I don't know what else I'll tell. We'll see. And uh, it, it, it feels like it's too restrictive to me and to the audience if I decide ahead of time. What's the, uh, I want to go back to this, but what's the story that, we're on the subject of just, subject of stories, what's the story that you feel that is close to your heart that is not commonly known? That just the title of a story that, that people may not have heard of or that people may want to look up, an author you'd recommend or a story? Oh my, well, that would, if I'm thinking about other, other stories than my own people's stories, um, I would have to give that some long thought. <laughs> so many, so many. Um, probably my favorite story of my own people's stories is a mm-hmm. story about the uh, uh, Mo Shop and the Porpoises, and that's oh, been yes. uh, that's been reprinted in a in a collection of stories for peace. I can't remember what the collection is called. I have that collection. I don't remember either. Yeah. I'll put it on the show notes for anybody interested listening to the show. If you want to know um, Moshe Up and the Porpoises, it's in your book. Um, yeah, it's in, in book the morning book. Right. And there's some beautiful pictures in that book. But it's also in this book, um, which name I can't remember, which is a beautiful book. But I'll have right. that book also listed in the show notes. 
good. Um, so, sorry, getting back to... In, the other story about, with, that I, I think is a really important story in the world at this point because everybody is concerned about peace and why the heck can't the United Nations get peace anywhere and that's what we set it up for and all that. And that's the story of the peacemaker. It's a, it's a story of the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee. It's their central story and, and a very important story because it's, you know, although it's legendary, it's also true. Uh, there was a peacemaker, it seems, because there is the great law of peace, which those six nations follow to this day, and they meet every year and recite in the old language by memory this great law of peace, and they all follow that, and they never go to war with each other in a thousand years. And uh, I think that's worth the rest of the world knowing about, because we can't seem to, to get people to agree, as they did, to solve all our differences and conflicts with words instead of weapons. So if if one of the storytellers is listening to this program, um, they hear about the Iroquois story, and they look it up, they do some research on it, and they start getting a shorter version, because it does take seven days to tell, three hours a day, or six hours a day. But if they, you know, they, they, they have a 45-minute version, an hour-long version that they're going to perform, mm-hmm. um, and they have no connection to a Native tradition, but they're being very honorable about presenting it. People in the Iroquois Nation would be uncomfortable with that. And I'm just curious how well, you I'm think... I'm sorry that about that. But, you know, um, I think that people can tell the stories from many people around the world, and if they're respectful about it and, and they're coming from their heart, there shouldn't be anybody's... Um, uh, I wouldn't worry about uh, people's objections. There's one thing I can suggest is that you don't use the name of the peacemaker as Morgan did in his in his works, even though he was uh, Iroquois himself, and uh, that's most people take it from that. But um, it's not necessary to use the name, and out of respect, those people don't use his name. They just say the peacemaker. Yeah. So. That's you know, that's just one little tip. But you know, I I think it's a it's a story that uh, the world it's time for the world to hear. Yes, yeah, I agree. I I have told it many times, and I think it's one of the most important stories. Um, so when we're working with kids and we're telling stories to children, and we're uh, we're creating a world for them, we're creating a mythology, or we're supporting them with a mythology. Yeah, I, I worked with some kids who I was able to tell uh, for a number of years in a row, a number of summers in a row, I told them actually the stories in your book, um, mm-hmm. Children of the Morning Light, at this camp. And by the third summer of me telling these stories, they knew them already, you know? And they would they would love to get to them. They'd be like, oh, tell us the one about most of the board. Tell us the one about Grandfather's mm-hmm. Son. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but the stories began to take on a different meaning for them, I think, because they heard them so many times. You know, it wasn't just a story. It became something that happened. Yep. It became an event, you know? Yeah. And uh, as storytellers, sometimes we don't have the opportunity to work with people enough for this to happen, but especially in, in, sometimes in the Greek myths, um, I worked with someone who went to a school in New York where they uh, they did all the Greek myths thoroughly for four years in a row. As, that was their schooling, entire schooling. It was an alternative school, and it eventually failed. The school did. But 
this this person can't, grew up with this experience where they they were Hermes for four years, <laughs> and they mm-hmm. played all the roles of Hermes in all these different stories, uh, and they loved it. They really got to explore what that meant. Um, uh, so I was just curious about how you see the role of storytelling with kids with growing up, in particular with the Wabanoag, and how that like. It feels to me like a lot of people are missing that from their lives. Yeah. Well, I mean, culturally, with with any specific people that is a specific culture like Wampanoag, uh, it, it's a way to instill pride in their heritage to say, these are our stories. They're different from other people's stories. We have these, and they're wonderful stories. But, you know, stories in general have in, incredible power. And... uh all children love stories, and, uh, and you know, as soon as you finish one, they want you to start out with another one. You know, so uh, the question is, what stories are we going to tell, and what, what, um, what's going to come across from that? You know, if you want to learn about a culture, then you look at its mythology. What, what? Mm. Uh, what connections the people of that culture make in their stories. Uh, now, if we're looking at our cultures today, uh, what's the mythology of American society? What are the guides given to young people to show how they should walk and shape their world? Uh, the mythology of American society in the last half of this last century is on TV in this current part of this century. I think every American household, or the average one, has several television sets. They're on four or five, six hours a day, and uh, there's a different culture in people who don't have a TV. <laughs> They're limited. They're completely out of this loop of of, of the uh, what everybody knows about TV. Well, what are the children watching? When they're watching TV, half the shows every night, there's a violent crime. They're filled with gunfire, space wars, robotic mayhem, superheroes, supervillains. Those are just the cartoons. On prime time, there's at least one crime show uh, with shootouts and car crashes. Fifteen minutes of every hour is spent trying to persuade people that to be a successful and content human being, they'll have to buy a lot of junk they don't need. I mean, the the message in the stories are not just in the stories; they're in how they're presented and uh, the, all the ads and everything else. The stories exert a magic power, even when they're not good. You know, I can I can turn on a TV and see a story started there and it's a terrible show it's a terrible <laughs> but you know I gotta find out what happens I'm hooked <laughs> you know I gotta watch that stupid story to the end because the power of the story is there for me too you know I can't let it go <laughs> you know how often I end up at campgrounds instead of hotels because I uh-huh. avoid the television set yeah I'm traveling around the country um, so in Today, in the modern generation, the new thing now is um, is the computer and the Internet. 
mm-hmm. and the YouTube. So the younger mm-hmm. my my teenagers, they're all instead of watching the whole program, they're just mm-hmm. watching four or five minutes, the best four or five minutes, the highlights of the different programs on the YouTube. Mm-hmm. And they're rarely watching that much television at all. But they do watch a lot of DVDs. And they're watching many more DVDs, many more movies than I ever watched as a kid growing up. Oh, they yeah, yeah. At least they don't, they don't get commercials on those things, huh? That, right. That's, it's very violent. That's one good part. You know, they, they showed a movie on the, on the screen. Uh, we were flying here, where I am right now. Um, and the kids were all watching it. And afterward, I was like, oh, it's so violent. I was, you know, talking to my wife, it's so violent. And the kids all said, oh, yeah, but they left all the good parts out. I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, they, we've seen that movie on DVD, and they left all the good parts out. They cut all the all the violent bits and all the sexy bits out. I didn't even notice, you know. I was like, oh, it's so violent. <laughs> but my kids were like, oh, yeah, they, they missed the good stuff. <clears throat> but the, the point is just how much there is there that exists. Uh, there's a quote that the average child by the age of 13 has watched 7,000 murders in the United States. Wow. Just a wow. amazing number. And I think they're counting people killed in cartoons and television shows. You know, when I go to uh, when I go to Europe, I have a, a ready-made audience to people that love American Indians already. And it didn't take me very long to figure out why, because they would come up to me after I would tell them stories and stuff, and they would say, I've always wanted to meet an Indian. I've been in love with Indians ever since I was a kid, because I read books, the stories of Karl May, a German author who wrote about a, a, a fictitious Indian he invented called Winnetou, and every German child knows Winnetou and loves it. So they all want to be, they all want to be Indians and going through the, the woods in the old days in their moccasins and so forth and so on. So the power of that story is, is totally amazing. Karl May didn't know a thing about Indians. He was written, writing romantically out of his head. And it, they sound absurd to any Indian that watch it, but it's got a power over those people. But that's the potential of stories with children yeah. and with societies. And I think that's the sort of thing I would love for storytellers in this country to really take ownership of, not to be sort of in your face about it, but just to be subconsciously aware or mm-hmm. consciously aware when they're telling a story that th- that a particular story can serve a particular interest. Yeah. So if they want to raise awareness about poverty, they can throw in this little yep. slant on their story. Or they want to raise awareness about peace. Or Sometimes when I go to festivals and I see the stories that are going on, I think they're very entertaining. But then I wonder, who are they serving? You know, what's the purpose? Exactly. I, I mean, it's good to listen. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's really nice to listen. Um, but it's also nice sometimes to go away with something more. Yeah, than just well, I really don't like it that uh, children are being told stories not by individual storytellers who care about the children and care about the stories, but by commercial interests that want to feed them what is uh, most commercially viable, and of course that turns out to be a lot of violence and stuff like that. And um, I, I want children to live in a society that's creative, where they're thinking about stories themselves and, and, and the stories are you know creative and interesting. And uh, I want to live in a society and a community that has a, a consciousness of themselves. So 
I mean, if we're trying to give children a consciousness of who they are living back, there's very little that does that on on TV. I think Saturday morning there's a lot of shows for young people, um, you know, teenagers and, and preteens that try to set themselves in the in the teenagers' world, and some of them work kind of some better than others, but a lot of it's uh, really, I don't know, it's manipulative, it seems to me. Um, but maybe maybe all stories are manipulative. It depends on who's doing the manipulating. <laughs> depends on who, what point of view you're coming from and where you are standing. Yeah. I guess I want people to come together as communities and share their deepest feelings with with each other and to shape their own myths, uh, representing themselves. Mm. Um, there's a throughout society I see a, a lack of a sense of the sacred. Uh, with, uh, I mean, there are still people who tell stories from their own religion, from Christianity or Judaism or or what have you. Um, and, of course, the Hindu religion is full of rich stories and the Buddhist, too. But not many people are really into that so much anymore. And there isn't any sense of the sacred in, 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 in life, in, in the stories that we're getting now. Can can you define what you mean by sacred? Because that can mean different things to different people. Hmm. When you mean sacred story, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, uh, from our point of view, my uh, my elders felt that everything in the creation was sacred. It all had a spirit, and and we treat things as though they are things. And we treat people as though they are things. Whereas my elders not only treated people as though they were sacred, they treated trees and animals and stones and rivers and wind and rain and thunders and everything else they they, they felt were were sacred. Um, And if you no longer see things as sacred, then people are preoccupied uh, with death, mm. uh, to avoid the, the the bleak prospect, the barren prospect of life without splendor or fulfillment, and death without hope or meaning, people fill their empty dreams with material things. They make objects of themselves and others, and hope, power, and prestige will take away their nightmares of the the void, and people are, are becoming increasingly cynical, selfish, pessimistic, desperate. When 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 life and the universe are not sacred, society becomes more aggressive and more apathetic. Mm. And it finds its ex- expression in violence and in drugs. Yeah, this is so true. It's, it's well thought out, too, the way you put it. And storytellers are are the antidote in yeah, many ways. Exactly. Yep. So let's talk about that. How can a storyteller 
be the antidote to this materialism that we see all around us? Well, I think what one of the things that that a storyteller needs to do, we all need to come together more often and share our feelings and our stories with each other. And storytellers can help bring people together and tell them well, they have stories and they have dreams and they have hopes and visions and what's important to them. You know, what are the important stories of their lives? What what do they hope for? What are they afraid of? And so forth and so on. And get dialogues going, getting people listening to each other so that we get a sense more of who we are and and, and who we want to be. And uh, not just life as it's dished out to us by the commercial interest, but what we want life to be. What we want our community and our family and our relationships everywhere to be. We need to share that more with each other, and and enforced by that, a storyteller can devise uh, the stories, the myths, the uh, legends, and whatever of today that will help guide people towards the kind of future that they want. We're a mix of so many and communities and, and all that, but we're alive today and we're building something today and we need to come together to find out, all right, in this time that we're looking forward to with us and our children and our grandchildren, what is, what do we want it to be? Not not just uh, what are we being fed. Uh, or what is it going to be, but what do we want? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And how how can we be that force or that representation of the future that we want? Mm-hmm. A, a healer that I really respect says, um, he says, you are tomorrow what you do today. Yeah. And to me, somehow that's a very difficult. It's, it sounds so simple, but it's very difficult. It's very difficult to, to change that behavior of today because you want it tomorrow. Most people just want to skip straight to tomorrow and see how it goes. <laughs> well, Ken, I think it comes from our coming together and listening to each other. I think a, a very important part of storytelling, as well as all the rest of our activities, uh, uh, war and peace and justice and injustice and politics of every other kind of thing, is that nobody's listening we need to start listening to each other. You know, when uh, when 9/11 happened, uh, somebody asked uh, the the Buddhist uh, monk Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese monk, uh, if you met Osama bin Laden, what would you say to him? And he said exactly what I would say. He said, "I would listen to him." And if we had listened to Osama bin Laden when he first started out to blow up the USS Cole, then perhaps we wouldn't have had the tragedy we had in New York. Storytelling with children. <laughs> Storytelling with children. Storytelling with children. So, 
storytellers, we carry a tremendous responsibility and a tremendous um, burden of sorts. To yeah, I wish, I wish the, the commercially people who write for movies and television and uh, all romance and all these uh, detective and all the genres of things, I wish that there was a higher standard in people's minds of what they could be as storytellers, how they could elevate uh, the world, you know. Well, you know what, story? I was just reading a book called The Long Tale, T-A-I-L, mm-hmm. and um, The Long Tale is all about how the the low the the number of low end successful producing um, movies and books and I mean basically every single product you can imagine is now tripling and doubling every year. So the mm-hmm. the level of excellence in terms of the number of products that are excellent that are that come out every year is increasing, mm-hmm. and it means that basically what they're saying is that the the creative skills and the creative abilities have increased to the point now where anybody can sit down and make a DVD that's pretty decent. And anybody can sit down and record a story for an audio that's really decent. Anybody can sit down in their basement and make a good, you know, make a piece of music that sounds pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the, the, the key is no longer on who can make it. The, the Hollywood doesn't matter anymore. What matters is who can find it. Because mm-hmm. there's so much stuff out there and some of it's junk. Uh, yeah. But that's very exciting for storytellers. I mean, it's really exciting news for us because we are natural producers. We create really good stuff. Mm-hmm. And so all we have to do is focus on being found. We don't need to focus on, on you know, getting Hollywood better because right now everybody has a computer. Everybody's one click away from your website or my website or or their, someone else's website. I think it's very exciting. It's a very exciting future we're in right now. Yeah. yeah I the think potential right. is really there. I think you're right. Um, so I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit more about the mythology with children. Uh, so one of the things that I worry about with kids is I'm working on some long stories, and at some points in the stories they're kind of dark because that's what stories are. They they're dark and mm-hmm. they're light, and mm-hmm. and I worry about when I'm working with children that when I'm going into the darkness that the kids are going to get overwhelmed by it, or you know I worry mm-hmm. about how much darkness I should let into these stories, these mythologies. You yeah, know, it depends like, on the age level a lot because um, there is, like you said, there's darkness and scariness in lots of kinds of stories. And um, if you tell Hansel and Gretel, you know, it's a story every little kid knows, but it's kind of scary when you get down to the witch one getting the kids into the oven and stuff like that. Uh, I remember when I was uh, oh, nine years old or so, I was... Uh, ordained by my mother to take a couple of younger kids of her friends to, to the movies. And we went to see um, Snow White and Seven Dwarfs, I think it was. And that witch came came on. You know, when she took the potion and turned into the witch, they started to scream. And I had to run out and call my mother and say, would you come and get these kids? But I loved it, you know. And there's a certain point in age where you understand about these things that this they're they are a story and then they're not going to hurt you and there isn't a real a real thing so i guess you know there's a real darkness in in the whole lot of hans christian anderson has really heavy stuff in some of his stories because he just wrote out of his own life you know
uh, you're going to have to, I mean, if you're live in front of a bunch of kids and you know that if, you, if you're if you telling stories to six-year-olds, you're going to tell different stories than you are to 12-year-olds. But if you're writing down stories, then you're just going to have to rely on the the mother that's going to read them to pick out the stories that are or, or to explain the darkness as they go along. You could explain. Uh, there certainly, there certainly is a way to, to have an audience, a mixed group, and if you tell it in a certain language, the older kids will get it and they'll be scared, and the younger kids will just totally miss the references. I've, certain, I've done that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's just... Wow, I can't... I have so much about to talk about. So much, so much time has already passed. Um, so a story... Talk about, I just want people to have a taste of the talking stick stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so if you could just talk for just a moment. I, I just want American storytellers to understand the talking stick. So if you could explain it in like five minutes real simply, uh, the, the advantages of a talking stick circle, using them with children or with adults and how you've used them and using them in the prisons right now. Could you just talk about that real quick? Yeah, well, um the, the the circle, uh, talking circle, is uh, is like a, a, a ritual that is most important for uh, our people, for Native people in general, and I think it goes back to the most ancient times that all other arts uh, and all other rituals actually spring from this circle of people talking. And a long time ago, they figured out that the best way to do that is to give attention to one person at a time and not interrupt them and give them the space to uh, present whatever whatever they want to present of themselves, of their thoughts and feelings and so on. And uh, in order to facilitate that, and particularly to be able to do it with strangers who are not part of your circle and so forth, that, uh, you can pass some kind of an object which has the uh, the power of Everybody has to pay attention to the person who holds the the object, whatever it may be. We call it a talking stick. Um, and indeed, when I, I, I the other day I brought a new talking stick into the prison, uh, they usually have their own, but I brought one in which I had gotten in Brazil. I said I brought this to people all over the world, and everybody who's held it has got their vibrations in this stick, and now you can put yours in this stick, and I'll carry you with me, and everything else. And they could really feel, you know, uh, that presence in in the stick itself. But when we make a circle, uh, I always make sure that the people understand the basic premise of respect for the stick or respect for the speaker so that uh, nobody ever gets interrupted, nobody ever gets um, argued with or anything like that. You just, you take in what that person has to give and say, well, you're going to learn about that person and you're going to get a little bit of that person. And uh, it's it's not a, it's never a contest or a, or a conflict because everybody's simply learning something from this presentation of the, of the person, we also ask people to be as true as they can to what they want to say, to be as honest as they can about it. Even if it's a story, uh, tell the story with, with all the honesty and reality that you can. 
uh, tell it from the heart and so on uh, so that it isn't just um, you know like a superficial joke or, or something like that because one feeds upon another as you listen and the stick goes around you get filled with ideas and filled with with thoughts and filled with feelings and so forth. So when it comes to you, then you're loaded with, with all kinds of stuff that, that goes into what you present usually. Over the period of time, when we do it in the prisons, for instance, uh, same people keep coming back, of course, and uh, they find that this is the only place in the prison, practically the only place in their lives probably, where they are personally respected and listened to. And that gives a, a great deal of safety in the circle, which is not present in other instances with people, uh, where they know that they have to respect and, and just listen, and they take it in, and everybody feels safe to be able to let out whatever they want to. They're not going to be contradicted or attacked or, or anything like that. And as that goes on, little by little, they get to know each other very, very well. And as they know each other very well, they begin to understand each other and understand themselves properly as they relate it to their own lives. And a bond begins to grow in that circle. It really becomes a family where people have been in the circle for a few months feel like they know the people in the circle better than they know their own family members at home because they never got together like that and that close and opened themselves up to each other. They never they never felt free from the attacks of other members of their family. So they, you know, kind of shut down in other instances. But here they open up, and it's, it helps them in the process of discovering who they really are and how they really want to live their lives, not in the way that brought them there to prison, whatever act it might have been. It might have been drugs. It might have been violence or um, robbery or something like that, and they, they understand that that isn't, that isn't the way that their soul wants to be. It isn't, it isn't who they are. They got somehow trapped into this lifestyle and this whatever happened to them, it was something that happened to them, and they get a chance to say, no, that's not me. I don't want that to be me. I want a real life uh, of the kind that that will support me and give me, you know, happiness. So the talking stick circle is a very, very powerful thing. We're going to be having our major uh, ceremonies in my tribe in a couple of weeks now. We'll be seeing people come on to the reservation, go up to the circle area, the sacred area, and uh, get together, and I know everybody's going to, the same as every year, we're all going to look around at each other and say, this is wonderful, I haven't seen you in a year or, or a long time. And and, and, and the start, stick will start with the, the elder men, and we'll go around through all the men, and then it'll go to the women who get the last word. And, uh, and we all get in touch with each other's lives and talk about the things that have happened in the past year and, and where we're going, and um, how wonderful it is to be back in the land together with our family. Mm. That's really good. That leads into my next question, which is, 
um, talking about storytelling within community, um, in in doing, in in going back to your um, to the reservation and getting in touch with the community with the talking stick, and then also of course in hearing the old stories or telling the old stories, um, you're really defining who you are and and where you belong. And, Hello. Yeah. And I'm so, missing you. Um, I'm still here. Can you hear me? Yeah, I, I, it seemed like you cut out there, but okay, I hear you now. Okay. Um, so the question just for you was, how do you, uh, um, how would you suggest a storyteller think about using their stories to, um, to define the group they're within, or to, um, to help the group they're within see themselves differently? Um, yeah. Uh, well, for, for one thing, I think it's good for our storytellers to realize that even though everybody has their own individual story and it's separate and it's illuminating, it, it's a it's it's a lesson for all of us to hear each other's stories. We are all very much the same, uh, and our community may have come through certain things that have been a challenge to the community that we need to talk about. We need to make stories about and how we have come through that and so on. We are all storytellers in a sense. Uh, Everybody has their own story and everybody has a story of who their family is, who their community is, what they've been through together with other people. You've got veterans coming back from the war. They have the story of, you know, their community in the war became so strong standing together in the face of war that they they never never lose those stories. They're the most important things to them. And everybody who writes and tells stories, of course, has a, a, a responsibility because of the power of them. And uh, a responsibility, I think, is to, to understand that they are healing. They can be healing and I think everybody who listens to stories should have a demand that they are healing. I, I don't think we should sit and take all this, these stories that are really uh, pandering to our, our worst uh, sides of, of, of commercialism and violence and, and uh, racism and all the things that come out there. That We, we should demand that stories be healing. Uh, that they represent our brightest vision and connect us to our highest nature and our essential humanness. We need stories that illuminate, uh, that provoke us with with laughter and tears and reach into our common need for love, be playful. Stories about courage in in war or uh, uh, other times of dehumanizing fear, stories of connections between parent and child and brother and sister, man and woman, woman and woman, man and man, old and young, connections between the cultures and the races and the religions and stories that bind us together and extol humanity, our, our, our common humanness, you know. They connect us to life and to earth and to all the beings, to the heavens and the space. You 
know, the, the whole cosmos we're, we're, we're part of. We, our, that, that's what I was talking about. The, the, the sense of the sacred the, means we look beyond our little petty uh, moment here of our selfish interest and what's going on right around us and what we get, but we go outward to our family, to our community, to our uh, our common humanity, to all animals and all life and the plants and all the earth, and then out beyond that to, uh, throughout the entire universe and where did it all come from and what is it doing and where are we going with it, you know? Yeah, I do know. There is something about when you are in service to some other force, some other cause. It's not mm -hmm. just you're telling a story that's funny or there's something else there in the room that's greater than all the people and you put together. Yeah. There's some other some other thing that you're serving that is a good thing. That is a good cause or a good purpose. Yeah, and it just drives your story forward in a way that is not driven when it's just you and the audience. Um, yeah. And the only way to know that is to experience it. Um, so before we uh, we're starting to wind up here, and I just wanted to make sure that you had the opportunity with the audience um, to just tell them about how you, they can reach you and um, your availability in terms of you have a lot of experience performing at festivals and schools throughout the country. Um, and do you do residencies anymore? Have you stopped doing them? Um, do no. Them? Uh, in fact, I am not as closely connected in the New England uh, uh, storytellers as, as I as I once was. I, I spend five months a year in Europe, and when I'm here in the States, I my focus as far as community is concerned is with, with about six prisons that I go to regularly every week and uh and work with the prisoners in circles there. Uh, but you would be in, interested you would be but, interested in working in a festival perhaps for a weekend? Oh yes. Or no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, I I do that and uh I usually if if nothing else I tell stories uh, uh on New Year's Eve for first night Boston and first night Worcester usually. Um uh, <laughs> But I'm, I, you know, when somebody comes to me and asks me for a special time of storytelling, then I consider it, and and probably I will if it doesn't take me too far off my course. But I'm spending more of my time bringing people together and getting the stories out of them and getting them to figure out how to change their community, their life, their way of being together with each other with their children, with uh, the economy, uh, how to become more self-sufficient, how to, to to help the earth and, and all the things that we need. I have a, a new book out called uh, Changing the World, which presents a, a vision of a community of the future that, that does all these things. And I think we are already building such things, and I'm I'm involved in trying to network with them, meet with them, and to develop more of them because I think that's the direction that we have to go in to be closer to each other and to take control of our society instead of having it run by huge corporations for commercial interests. You know, so uh, people can reach me by um, checking out our website, which is 
thecircleway.org because we're not. And that link will be on in the show notes. As okay, well. good. So the circleway.com, I think, is somebody else, and it's nothing to do with us. So I have to make sure that it's circleway.org. And, uh, and I, I have the I, same problem with ericwolf.org. The ericwolf.com person is a real estate agent in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. He's never happy to get my storytelling emails sometimes from people <laughs> looking for me. Well, I can't wait till the people let loose of that dot com because I think they just have some kind of something they sell for sex. I don't know what it is. But. <laughs> well, the the circleway dot org and it'll be in the show notes. You are available for festivals and you also are available for special storytelling um, gigs. Um, you don't do residence anymore because you're focusing on the prison. You would you be interested in training or coaching with people over the telephone in terms of talking sticks, working with talking sticks? If anybody's uh, sure, in I'll talk to people on the phone or or, or by email. Uh, you know, if if I'm not if I get overwhelmed by this, then then I'll cut it out. I would uh, worry because about it. I I am trying to uh, be more protective of my time because I, I'm writing about four books at once. Well, this is this is only the third show, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, if you want to know more about Talking Stick, Story has recorded with me a 45 minute track talking about using talking sticks and how to use them. And I'm going to put that CD up on the storytelling CD section of, of the website uh, for this podcast. Uh, so you can buy that track at 45 minutes. And he talks about it in detail all different ways, and Story gets a section of those sales. Um, and also there's another hour-long track on community and storytelling and using storytelling in communities and different ways you could do that. And Story talks even more in depth about that issue as well. Um, so, Story, I just want to thank you again for coming on the show. I really am so grateful. I really appreciate it. Okay. Uh, thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun, Eric. Do you um, have any final words of advice for the National Storytelling Movement? <laughs> for the movement? Oh, that's that's huge. <laughs> yeah, I think well, I already said it. I, I think uh, that what we have to do is develop a lot more listening. And it's to our advantage as storytellers to 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 listen to others because that's how we determine what what is uh, what we want to say. But I, uh, I I really think that it's a, it's a it's a great idea to keep bringing people together to talk and listen to each other. Oh, well, thank you so much, Story. All right. This guest has written a post for the blog at www.storytellingwithchildren.com. You can make a comment or ask a question in the blog comment box about this discussion. If you wish to join a future discussion live on the call, go to www.storytellingwithchildren.com and sign up to the email alerts to receive future notices of shows. This show was conceived, hosted, and produced by me, Eric Wolf. And to support the show, you may learn more about my storytelling work by going to www.ericwolf.org. The music was created by Mary Kay Croft, and we are much indebted to her contribution. This podcast is the responsibility of Brother Wolf Storytelling and is distributed under a Creative Commons non-derivative license. That means you can copy it and give it away, but you can't edit it or sell it. Thank you so much for listening.